0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. Today is part two of our discussion of Kate Millett's sexual politics, and I'm super excited to welcome back to the show my illustrious reading
1: partner, Maxine Hanks. Thanks for being here again, Maxine. Oh my gosh, I'm having so much fun. I, I, I'm wishing that I had joined your podcast sooner. I wish I'd been here from the beginning, but um, I'm loving it. So oh. you, you are fabulous. Thank you. You are fabulous.
0: I I can't tell you how much it means to me to have you here. So we're going to share some themes and some passages that we thought were important, as usual, and I want to start by taking a look at the very beginning of the book, she opens the book with some very long quoted passages from Henry Miller's book, which is called *Sexus*. It was published in the 1940s in Paris, but it was banned in the United States because of anti-pornography laws. And usually I'd be like, oh, it was probably like just Victorian prudery that banned, you know, what they thought of as porn. But no, that's actually pornography. Like I read it, I was like, whoa. So I was quite horrified. Um And because I didn't know who he was, I thought that maybe Kate Millett had just dug up some scummy author who wrote (laughs) violent sex scenes or something. But then I was like, oh, no, he's like a really well-known and respected elite author. And so I was reading. I I had to read a bunch online to just kind of like get my bearings. And I just read some some like recent reviews on Goodreads. And there were tons of people talking about what a genius he was, and I'm just going to quote one kind of representative quote. So this is from a man reviewing Miller, re- reviewing Miller's sexist, this very book that, that Millet quotes. So this guy says quote, "Some of Miller's most inspiring writing, I think. This is the kind of book you want to come with a highlighter so you can remember where those amazing passages are to quote again and again." That said, it's not for everybody, especially prudes." end quote And so again, like that's when I read that I was like, okay, this is why Millett took on Miller because you know some literary critics praised Miller for his artistry and his genius and he was celebrated for his courage in breaking literary boundaries and talking about sex so explicitly. And then there were some people who criticized his obscenity and so there's like all of these various aspects that they're discussing but it seemed like nobody was talking about, those passages from a woman's point of view and nobody was talking about how degrading and misogynistic those scenes are. So it's like, Oh, is it, is it appropriate or like he's breaking these boundaries so bravely or no, actually that's obscene, but they're not saying no, it's like violently, um, anti-woman. So, I mean, yeah, on one level, I guess I would say I'm a prude cause I did hate the chapter and I found it super <laughs> offensive for like multiple reasons. Um, but I would, I mean, so yeah, again, just kind of like a content alert to listeners. Like if you want to read it, just be, just be aware that that's what you're going to find. But now I understand why Millet did it,
1: right? Yeah, so. exactly. And, uh, and I, I share your revulsion at, at his writing and I, and I'm not a prude. <laughs> you know, I, grew this, <laughs> I grew up in the sixties and seventies, you know, <laughs> seeing violence and, and sexism and misogyny on TV and in culture mm-hmm. and, um, kind of been through all those b- wars and battles but uh yeah she takes on miller because he's the epitome his writing is just the epitome of misogyny and the leftist men so she she picks those three authors um Lawrence and Miller and um and Mailer b- because they typify and and as better than anyone the the epitome of the misogyny and violence toward women in the writings and and attitudes and views of the leftist men who were supposed to be women's colleagues in the radical deconstruction of oppressive social systems. Yet these men hadn't even realized or bothered to care (laughs) that -hmm. women's bodies and the sexual imbalance of power between men and women were the very foundation of those oppressive systems. So Mm. Here they were in their writings, supposedly undoing those oppressive systems, and they were reinforcing the subjugation and the abuse and rape uh, of women in their work. And those abuses of women in their work really needed to be refuted. Otherwise, Kate and other feminists knew they weren't going to succeed at their double task, double duty of, of undoing female oppression in the larger culture you know, and finding new language and at the same time fighting the the only colleagues they had in
0: mm-hmm. the battle,
1: you know. So in our
0: first episode on this book, in part one, I mentioned that um, when I took that class my freshman year of college on critical theory, and there was a chapter in my book on feminist critique, I mentioned that I might have Kate Millett to thank for that chapter, right, as being like a valid prism through which to approach a text. Is that right, Maxine? Did this, am I right in thinking that it was this book that really opened up a path for feminist literary criticism?
1: Oh, yes, definitely. Um, in fact, Sexual Politics has been called the first book of academic feminist literary criticism hmm. because Kate engaged literary texts critically through a radical feminist reading or lens. So yeah, she pioneered and launched uh, feminist uh, critique and readings of literary texts.
0: That's amazing. That's so great. Okay, the first passage that I want to talk about from Millet is um, in the part of the book where she's kind of talking about the historical timeline and how patriarchy has functioned in society. So she says this, quote, what goes largely unexamined, often even unacknowledged, yet is institutionalized nonetheless, in our social order, is the birthright priority whereby males rule females. Through this system, a most ingenious form of interior colonization has been achieved. It is one which tends, moreover, to be sturdier than any form of segregation and more rigorous than class stratification, more uniform, certainly more enduring, However muted its present appearance may be, sexual dominion obtains nevertheless as perhaps the most pervasive ideology of our culture and provides its most fundamental concept of power. This is so because our society, like all other historical civilizations, is a patriarchy— The fact is evident at once if one recalls that the military, industry, technology, universities, science, political office, and finance, in short, every avenue of power within the society, including the coercive force of the police, is entirely in male hands. As the essence of politics is power, such realization cannot fail to carry impact. What lingers of supernatural authority, the deity his ministry, together with the ethics and values, the philosophy of art, of our culture, its very civilization, as T. S. Eliot once observed, is of male manufacture. End of quote. So she just kind of spells it out there, right? I'm that that patriarchy pervades and, and is the structure of all aspects of society. And I just wanted to bring to the foreground two terms from that passage that really struck me. One was, quote-unquote, interior colonization. Um, Millet uses an example where she, she cites a study where a bunch of uh, women college students were asked to respond to an essay. And on half of the essays, the author's name was John McKay, and on the other half of the essays that were distributed to, the, to these women students, the author was um, cited as Joan McKay, and they had to make an assessment of what they thought of this author's arguments based on this essay, and their assessments of John's essay were that he was a brilliant thinker, and the assessment of Joan's essay was that she was unimpressive. And the essays were identical. The only thing that was, um, different was just one was written. They thought that one was written by a man and the other half thought that it was written by a woman and their, their response to it was completely different. And they felt that, that it, when it was a woman author, that it was inferior thinking. So That's an example of that interior colonization of patriarchy. And then the other phrase that really stood out to me from that quote was that all of these things are of male manufacture. And our family, um, we love this book by Benjamin Zander called The Art of Possibility. And Benjamin Zander, um, one of his big um, premises in the book is that everything is invented. Everything at some point was just made up by somebody. And that helps us, you know, we teach our kids that to, to just think critically, think creatively. Remember that you don't have to be bound by constructs, just some random person made up everything that you see in the world, everything's invented. And so Millet points out, yeah, everything was invented by a man, <laughs> like <laughs> by by male manufacturer. And uh, she later says, quote, under patriarchy, the female did not herself develop the symbols by which she is described. As both the primitive and the civilized worlds are male worlds, the ideas which shaped culture in regard to the female were also of male design, end quote. So those were some parts that really stood out to me from that passage.
1: Yeah, I really agree. I was really glad that you targeted the interior colonization. That is such an important theoretical tool that she uses. And this was something I learned, of course, in women's studies in the 80s that this this again, this is how we get at that double bind that women are in that they're enfolded within male perspective and discourse, and they have to somehow work their way out of it um, and so they have to undo first two levels, the interior colonization, where they are reinforcing and restating those male views of women within their own minds. they have to undo that first before they can start to undo the The ways that male perspective has shaped um, social cultural institutions, and so women didn't get women are bound by those constructs that were invented by men, and we have to undo those constructs and come up with our own and then try to help them find root and place in culture and society and language and literature. Um, and you know, along with that, Kate also says um, that sexual politics obtains consent through the socialization of both sexes. And this socialization is based on the needs and values of the dominant group and dictated by what its members cherish in themselves and find convenient in subordinates. So aggression, intelligence, force, efficacy in the male, and passivity, ignorance, docility, virtue, and ineffectuality in the female. These sex roles assign domestic service and attendance upon infants to the female and the rest of human achievement, interest, and ambition to the male. Mm -hmm. And this is a really powerful um, statement Okay, yeah, that
0: reminds me exactly of what um, one of the next points that we were going to talk about, Maxine. um, That that conversation, and my husband and I talk about this all the time, of what's natural and what is constructed in society, and and it always reminds me of John Stuart Mill saying, "We don't know because there have been so many limiting factors um, placed upon women. We actually don't even know what the nature of woman is," and and that actually comes up in in Many texts um, that we've read mm-hmm. for the podcast that we don't really know what what gendered uh, what the nature of gender is because society has meddled so much and in, in constricting us. But there's a passage that Millet um, writes that has to do with what you just said. She says um, the heavier musculature of the male, a secondary sexual characteristic and common among mammals, is biological in origin but is also culturally encouraged through breeding, diet, and exercise. Yet it is hardly an adequate category on which to base political relations within civilization. Male supremacy, like other political creeds, does not finally reside in physical strength, but in the acceptance of a value system which is not biological. Superior physical strength is not a factor in political relations like those of race and class. Civilization has always been able to substitute other methods, technology, weaponry, knowledge for those of physical strength, and contemporary civilization has no further need of it. So I think basically what she's saying here is that even if this system was originally built on nature, right, for, with men being bigger and stronger, that in a society that's it's, it is made irrelevant when you look at, for example, if you look at dominant men throughout history, there's like the legendary... Um, Napoleon, who was short, even though it turns out maybe he wasn't as short as people thought for a long time. But, but um, the point being that physical size doesn't seem to matter much right? In, in very dominant men. It's the social structure that privileges males and encourages those dominator characteristics as being masculine and then prizes those all masculine characteristics. And then it, it disqualifies females right out of the gate just by virtue of, of them being females. Mm -hmm. But then this was interesting to me because she does talk about that, that like, we don't really need to factor in males, bigger, stronger physical bodies anymore, because we live in a civilization with laws and, and stuff. And we use technology now and we use scholarship and we use all of these, you know, different abilities rather than physical characteristics. But then she says, and I'm going to quote her again, quote, We are not accustomed to associate patriarchy with force. So perfect is its system of socialization, so complete the general assent to its values, so long and so universally has it prevailed in human society that it scarcely seems to require violent implementation. Customarily, we view its brutalities in the past as exotic or primitive custom, those of the present are regarded as the product of individual deviance, confined to pathological or exceptional behavior and without general import. And yet, just as under other total ideologies, racism and colonialism are somewhat analogous in this respect, control in patriarchal society would be imperfect, even inoperable, unless it had the rule of force to rely upon, both in emergencies and as an ever-present instrument of intimidation, end quote. So in that respect, she's saying, you know, actually we don't rely on physical force anymore, and we don't need to, so it's not that relevant. But then in this quote, she's saying, but there's always the threat of it, and actually patriarchy wouldn't work if the dominant caste in the caste system were smaller, like, because (laughs) you, you couldn't have that, you know, constant underlying fear that, well, if it came down to it, actually, the, the dominant caste could beat me up or kill me. It, it reminds me of that that famous quote by Margaret Atwood, the author who wrote um, The Handmaid's Tale. And she said, men are, af- men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. And just that that differential of the power, right? That a woman just, I think, always, I don't know about you, but I, I remember feeling like, oh, wow, as women, we are constantly on some level, on some very primal level, aware of like, that person could rape me, that person could kill me. Like, that's just always a reality. And so mm-hmm. I do kind of mm-hmm. tend to agree that that patriarchy, I don't know that it would have been so effective if men hadn't been so much bigger and stronger. And that there is, I mean, it, certainly at least in marriages, in intimate relationships,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that that there is just that awareness of like, it's not a level playing field because a woman always kind of has that primal sense of like, I, I do have to do what this person says because I'm powerless. I'm very, very vulnerable in these
1: relationships. Mhm. Exactly. No, that's that's so well articulated and laid out. That's that's exactly what she does. It's how she deals with both realities in her mm-hmm. work, the the reality of the constructed nature of society and culture and identity but at the same time the biological reality underpinning it. Um mm-hmm. so she sees sexual relations as utterly embedded in politics mm-hmm. and social order and institutions. And and that she sees politics as essentially sexual. I mean, this is the mm-hmm. meaning of the title of her book, Sexual Politics. Politics are essentially sexual. Mm. Okay, right there, she's saying that even, de- well, even democracies are male hegemonies, but she's saying that the sexual relationship and nature is, is at the root you know the the underlying foundation of these things, and that you can't get away from it, you can't ignore it. it's it's still there and it stays with us. And mm-hmm. so we have to see the sexual roots of politics in order to address patriarchy and sexism and oppression
0: mm-hmm. and not just sexual politics because when I read it, i I thought like sexual politics like there are biological differences between male and female there there you know, the difference between the sexes, but she's talking about actual, I mean, again, the fact that she is quoting at length these passages where men are raping and murdering women. Mm-hmm. It's not just that there are two different sexes, you know, th- right. that binary or whatever, but it's like, no, men rape and murder women and and the, the artists in our culture that we um, admire and hold up as our great artists write about it without even thinking anything's wrong with it, that
1: men rape and murder women. I mean... Right, exactly.
0: Yeah.
1: Exactly. So she's saying that the foundational power of patriarchy historically was biological, Mm -hmm. the physical Mm -hmm. power of men over women. And she's also saying that even though that primitive society and brute force has been replaced by Mm -hmm. social, economic, cultural systems in modern society that biological underpinning of sex relations still inhabits our cultural systems and relations, even if it's mostly a social construct. Yeah. So it's a very important paradoxical point that she's making. So this of course helps to explain why Kate Millett focuses on patriarchy's chief institution as being in the family. The family is both a mirror of and a connection with the larger society, a patriarchal unit within a patriarchal whole. Mediating between the individual and the social structure, the family effects control and conformity where political and other authorities are insufficient. Serving as an agent of the larger society, the family not only encourages its own members to adjust and conform, but acts as a unit in that government. Of the patriarchal state, which rules its citizens through its family heads, even in patriarchal societies where they are granted legal citizenship, women tend to be ruled through the family alone and have little to no formal relation to the state. Of course, she wrote this in 1970, and some things have changed since then. But
0: yeah, anyway. Definitely. Some things have changed in our country and in, in other countries. They're very much the same as they've always been. But I thought of when I read that passage, I thought of Beauvoir. There's just that that little piece in the second sex where she talks about there's just this image that stayed in my mind of the husband going out to political meetings while the wife stays home with the kids. And she's like, Praying the rosary at home and just living out her life, making sure that she doesn't break any rules, so that she can go to heaven. And when um, Yeah, when Millet talks about like that, the the kind of the fun- fundamental unit of patriarchy is the family, and the woman doesn't even really interact with the state that much. She just interacts with her husband, and it's like kind of a manageable bite size. Patriarchal unit, so so that the state doesn't have to monitor and surveil every woman. It just happens, you know, on the smaller scale with w- between husband and wife, and the wife just kind of stays at home and does her thing, and she's quite effectively subdued that way.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's internalized.
0: Yeah, right, right. That interior it, colonization yeah. again, right? Yeah. I mean, another passage that I had thought to highlight from Millet is, I mean, I'll be eager to hear what you think of this, because there is that strain, as I'm understanding it, there is a kind of a streak within radical feminism, or maybe even more of a streak. I mean, maybe it is one of the central tenets, at least in some radical feminist work, where it really truly is a reimagining of what a family should look like, and even kind of, you know, an ideological rejection of the traditional family. Um, and not necessarily just saying, "Well, do whatever works for you," and you should have a choice, but rather, like, no, patriarchal families should be abolished, and that's, of course, where the fear comes from, right? Mm-hmm. At least in our religious mm-hmm. tradition, and right. in anyone, you know, conservative religions. But even like as you said, that there's a there are a lot of um, a lot of people, even in the secular world, who would say, "Wait a second, I, is there something wrong with me that I want to grow up, get married, and have children?" And be with my babies when they're little or whatever. And, and they feel very threatened by radical feminism saying, that's oppressive. All marriage is oppressive. All families are just units of perpetuating the patriarchy, right? And I do want to read this passage mm-hmm. where Millett um, kind of lays out what she's proposing. So here are some direct quotes from Millet. She says, one... A sexual revolution would require, perhaps first of all, an end of traditional sexual inhibitions and taboos, particularly those that most threaten patriarchal monogamous marriage, homosexuality, illegitimacy, adolescent, pre- and extramarital sexuality. The goal of revolution would be a permissive single standard of sexual freedom. Um. So I know that there would be a lot of people I know that would be like, whoa, hold, (laughs) (laughs) like, (laughs) stop the train. (laughs) Like, that's too far, right? But that's what she's advocating for. Um, Another thing she says is, second, the reexamination of the traits categorized as masculine and feminine with a reassessment of their human desirability, the violence encouraged as virile, the excessive passivity defined as feminine, proving useless in either sex, the efficiency and intellectuality of the masculine temperament, the tenderness and consideration associated with the feminine recommending themselves as appropriate to both sexes. Okay, so there, I mean, we've talked about this in a bunch of other texts where she's saying there should be just positive traits and negative traits, and they shouldn't be gendered. And then third, one another thing that she advocates is, quote, the collective professionalization and consequent improvement of the care of the young. Marriage might generally be replaced by voluntary association, if such is desired. Were a sexual revolution completed, the problem of overpopulation might cease
1: to be the insoluble dilemma it now appears, end quote. So all of these things are are really important topics and mm. and for all of us to consider.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of these episodes, Maxine. And um, before we close out, I just want to ask if you have any like takeaways or like a major theme that you want to leave with listeners as we, as we
1: wrap up. I I think her book is, really watershed in launching the radical feminism and its specific goals. And, and she lived it and wrote it. She was doing it and describing it at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the paradox, the double duty that feminists find themselves in and have always found themselves in. So a big takeaway is, um, and this is what I learned from all of those other feminists. um, Don't, don't feel weird don't feel guilt don't punish yourself don't feel like you're you're not valid or real just because you're having to invent your voice and your discourse as you're trying to unpack the things that are constructing you this is what we all had to do so you're not alone and it's very real and it's very necessary and be brave and unpack the, the forces and the, the discourses that have defined you and know that you have a right as a human being, whether you're male or female, to examine those and unpack them. And that's a huge takeaway from her book that gave me tremendous, um, she and all of the other feminists like her gave me tremendous sense of validity and courage and Confidence to be able to find myself and have the freedom to figure out or explore who I might be, and and find my voice. And at the same time, and I think this is crucial, and this is something I've tried to do in my work from the '70s onward to really um, validate and urge. the the right of human beings to decide that for themselves to be self-defining and to know that if you do really feel very female identified and you want to have children and stay home with them, there's no need to apologize. There's no need to try to defend that. Um, Be who you are and know that you have the right to decide that for yourself. That decision belongs to you and whatever you're able to do with your own physiology and, biology and inherited traits and your your training and your family situation and your class situation and your economic limitations just just know that that you deserve that freedom and that right even though you have all these other forces like class and money and and color and um, income that that Profoundly shape and affect you, and so at the same time, I I always try to urge, and and I think this is an important takeaway from her book that you're not entirely free, you're not entirely able to just imagine who you want to be and become that. You you are a product of larger forces and other forces, and you have to deal with those. And um, so, yeah, it's it's both. I think those are both important takeaways.
0: Powerful, Maxine. I cannot thank you enough for your insight and your wisdom. Um, I'm so so grateful to have had you here for both of these episodes, and so grateful that we read this book. And like I said, so grateful that I read it with you. Um, so thank you for guiding me through it and um, and having these conversations with me. Thanks for being here.